The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organizations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. Hello and welcome to the rebooted Open Fire podcast, sponsored, sponsored Good old by Frank and Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Dave Calvert and my co-presenter is Thomas Gilbert. Hello, Tom. Hello, Davos. How's your week? Yeah, really good. It's been busy since last week, actually. It's been back to back. Yeah. So you were telling me off air about Monday night Mormon football. <laughs> I do. Did you, do, you score? Yeah. Did you score a goal for me? I do. So the the strange the strange thing about so I play football twice a week: Mormon Mondays and Thug Thursdays. So Thug Thursdays are with like people. I can understand who are why you go to Thug Thursdays. So, so the difference is when you do score they all a look goal like Phil Thursday, Mitchell with a beard like you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Thursday when you score a goal, there's cheers, and when you score Mormon Mondays, there's silence and sort of mild clapping. <laughs> From your teammates, it's just it's an interesting dynamic. But incidentally, the football generally hurts more at Mormon because they go for you. Did I? They do go for you. Yeah. Do you have to be a Mormon to go then? No, I, I'm exempt. I don't know why. Do they think you're why. a Mormon? They definitely don't think I'm a Mormon. Hmm. I'm the only one that swears when I'm playing. So there you go. It's interesting. So what are we talking about, about? me. What are we going to talk about today, Tom? Hopefully not more about my footballing. Okay, fine. Um, I don't know. You, you literally don't know what we're talking about this week, do you? No, not really. Okay. I'm, I'm guessing main contractor-related problems and fire doors. Correct. Good Based guess. on the two people that work in the room with us. Good One guess. being the fire door expert and one So before we here. introduce our guests uh, for this week, I think we should go to uh, our news correspondent, who I believe <laughs> last week told us she's going to be in Baghdad. Is it Daryl Hannah? Yep. So um, Lucy uh, Witz, can you hear us in Baghdad? Just about. Are you still in Baghdad? No, I'm in space after being told off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we couldn't find sound effects for Baghdad loose. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that you uh, you, you failed the HR protocol with the Open Fire podcast. Okay, so, so, so whereabouts in space are you, Lucy? <laughs> Mars? Mars. I wasn't thinking it was a tenable condition. <laughs> I feel like you haven't thought this for all of you this week. Okay, what news have you got for us, Lucy? So they've announced this week that they're doing a remake of Backdraft with Jennifer Lawrence as a female lead. Ah, my favourite film. Do you reckon it's going to be better with Jennifer Lawrence as the lead? Well, it's never going to be better than Kurt Kurt Russell. Indeed, that's going to be hard. Is that true? It's it's 21st century equal opportunities. Did you make that up? I'm not suggesting for a minute she's not going to be as good because she's a lady. I think any human trying to take on that role would struggle. It's a bit sexist, Tom. All right, that's not why men. Yeah. We'll speak to our um, nominee to the uh, Women in Housing Awards about that later on. Yeah, today. she'll tell you, Dave, that she yes. didn't think it. The government are consulting on reducing the building height for requirement of sprinklers from the current 30 metres and above to 18 metres. Okay. Clever. Anything else? And statistics show that there's now 12,000 less firefighters than in 2010, which the FBU have described as being in crisis after years of brutal cuts. Excellent. Can we finish the space sound effects now? 
Where, where are you going to be? The sound man is shaking his head in horror at that impression. Where are you going to be next week? I'm scared to ask, but what are you setting our sound man Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> Oh, that's not too bad. Interesting. I could imagine that. Oh, don't, don't, okay, imagine we'll look forward to hearing from you next week, no. Lucy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're lucky enough in the studio this week to have three guests. We've got Suzanne Eaglin, uh, Head of Compliance for Kia for three years and over 15 years in the industry and uh, recently nominated as Consultant of the Year in the Women in Housing Awards. Welcome ooh, to the studio, ooh. Suzanne. Hello. thank you. <laughs> um, in addition, addition to Suzanne, we've got long-term friend of the show, uh, Danny White, Firedoor uh, expert from Firedoor Compliance Consultants Limited. Hello, Dan. Hello. I'm so glad to be back. How have you been? I've been really good, thanks, Dan. We haven't seen you for a while, <laughs> have we? And we've Get also got <laughs> uh, Managing Director of Frank and Risk Management Services, uh, John Powell. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me back. You're very welcome, John. Just to be clear, I had no choice in the matter, John. <laughs> You've just turned up. Dave oh. sorts this stuff out. That's how it is. I know. So, Su Suzanne, just to sort of uh, kick off um, the conversation, so what sort of companies are making up the main client base uh, for Kia that Kia is serving at the moment? Um, predominantly, we're working a lot with um, councils and housing associations. So we're working with Metropolitan, Notting Hill Genesis, um, Town & Country, Thrive. We've got some more clients sort of coming on to do some work with us. So, yeah, we're quite busy, but, yeah, predominantly has So what sort of landmark projects are you guys uh, got, got in the works at the moment? Well, we've got a couple. We're now starting with Hammersmith and Fulham to do some, uh, I think it's 2,000 fire doors in their high-rise blocks, which has been really good. Procurement from that, from the office, has been really successful. So they've got um, Bailey Garner as consultants on that, and they've done direct award to ourselves and Onji. Um, so that's really good. So, yeah, that's now... Second week on site, so getting site set up and everything done. That one's going to be really pop, really good. Um, and we've also just finished um, a scheme called Bolognacci, which was um, domestic dwellings again. That's um, with the Hyde group, isn't that it? That is with Hyde, yeah. yeah we worked yeah. through um, Martin Arnold okay. for that. And that's the recladding of the building. Yeah. So it had the same um, ACM as Grenfell. So we took that off. We had to um, do some further tests and specifications and work closely with Martin Arnold on that because... There were some issues on site. That's now complete. It did turn into a bigger project, though, because when, when we got inside the flats, um, there was a lot of fire stopping. So a lot more work than initially thought, but it's been really successful and just finished. So I think we've just had a celebration party over oh, there for the residents. Mm -hmm. So obviously as head of compliance for a large main contract like Kia, you're currently incredibly busy, I guess, processing the actions from a wide range of risk assessments, sort of fire-related yeah. works. So what sort of actions are causing the majority of the works that need remediating? I.e. what's causing you the biggest headache? Well, I suppose you the headache and the client's initial headache, I guess. Yeah, uh, to be honest, it's quite generic across the different clients. Um, mm -hmm. So we get a lot of fire-stopping, compartmentation issues, so yeah. risers, um, lofts, all that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of fire door maintenance and reactive repairs so I think there's a discrepancy there that clients don't quite understand that yeah. um, some of the work we do on a fire door isn't necessarily under the certification being BM Trader. Sure. so they'll ask for strips and seals in an existing door we don't obviously know what that door is so yeah. that's not done under the certification so you're talking about um, some of the upgrade works which because I mean there are social housing organisations out there of course who are looking at Flat entrance doors, yeah. maybe got a one-inch stop, built, installed in the 70s, something like that, probably uh, 
44 mil thick door blank, yep. that sort of thing, self-closing, et cetera, et cetera. And they've got this view, rightly or wrongly, I mean, we probably agree, slightly misguided probably, that, oh my goodness, we need intermittent strips and cold smoke seals. Let's do that to the door. That'll make the door at least better. And then, of course, we've got our man in the room who knows doors like no other, who, who will, of course, <laughs> tell us does. that that's just stupid. I am completely in shock at the moment that Tom has actually learnt something on doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I think it's down to a lot of bit terminology, um, where people think that if they put a few strips and seals on a door, it automatically becomes an FD30S. The thing they forget is what is a starting point? Is yeah. it an FD10, 15, 20 no idea yeah um and also what's the, the stability of the door there have been quite a lot of tests undertaken with hollow calls and they're just failing but again i think some of the issues are some of the poorer risk assessments are going out and just making generic statements on what they think they I should agree do. with that yeah and i think that's also sort of goes through to the fire stopping aspects as well well they'll find one hole, but forget about the other 20 holes, yeah. which then puts a problem with the contractor because the client's budgeted for one hole, but yet they need to put 20 holes in. Yeah, so. absolutely. Dan, Dan can, I, can I ask a question? Because um, clearly since Grenfell, um, rightly, there's been a, an increased focus on uh, sort of you know, the integrity of fire door systems. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a, clearly a lot of activity going on with testing. And a lot of money's been spent around testing to um, confirm the adequacy of those door sets. Um, when I think about when I first started my career many, many years ago, um, that you know, there was an immense amount of work about upgrading fire door systems. <laughs> you know, increasing door stops at twenty-five millimeters, and as you say, put, you know, putting smoke seals in, and that, and that was always considered to be adequate. Um, you know, specifications were written specifically around upgrading rather than replacement. But now we seem to be moving into the territory that most door sets, even if we seek to upgrade them, are probably not going to be sufficient. So therefore, there's a tendency to want to replace them as opposed to maintain them. Um, and some of these door sets, you know, uh, which may be um, doors that are in um, listed buildings, um, that you know were designed f- um, specifically for the purpose of providing fire door provision. So, so I mean, how are you finding things? Because it seems as though we're going to we swung completely to one end of the spectrum when it was quite um, suitable and sufficient a few years ago to upgrade doors. I, I think one of the issues has always been a lot of people have never really understood fire doors, um, and they're quite a complex beast. Um, and because you've got a door in a hole, so to speak, then people think, well, that should be okay because that's probably how it was at the time. Yeah. And, and a lot of the time, I, I sort of liken them to, to only fools and horses and triggers broom because <laughs> people see the door, but nobody really knows how many times a frame's been spliced in, how many times has something been changed on the door. So when you come across a door, it's probably not in its original state. Yeah. And again, that some people have gone down the the route of, okay, we're going to upgrade a door in factory conditions by putting strips and seals in to see if we can achieve the FD30. So bearing in mind it's done under factory, it's still failing. Um, And also when you do a cost-benefit analysis of the amount of money cost to upgrade 
as opposed to re, uh, to replace, you it's might minimal. Just replace it, might yeah. You? And then at least you know you're getting, as long as you do it correctly, a fully certified and tested door set. So I think it's better for the industry because again, you've got to think about the shelf life of things. You know, these doors could have been in there 50, 60 years, and they're trying to sort of bodge them. Yeah. Well, there aren't many things that, from a a passive fire protection you leave in place for 50 years without properly maintaining them. Well, that's it. I mean, even when you start looking at third-party certificated products around passive fire protection, just UV degradation over like 10 to 15 years exists. So you then have to start thinking about how to replace that over 15 years. But yet, we happily leave a, a, a door which is open and closing 20 times a day in a hole for 60 years. I mean, in some cases, literally 60 years when the testing wasn't as robust, the technology wasn't as robust, the competency of the people installing it wasn't there. And and then all of a sudden, fast forward to now, and everyone's saying, oh, I'm really surprised that doors are no good. And you think, Re- like, really? Mm. Are you really surprised? I mean, I remember working for a social housing company 15 years ago when I set a 10-year door replacement program because we acknowledged that the fire doors were no good and using third-party certificated product. And across their whole portfolio, it was a £50 million investment over 10 years. And two years after I left, they were nowhere near finishing it because some bright spark had said, well, it was all right when it went in, so it must be okay now. And you think, we just know it's no good. I mean, we really do. The old doors are just... I think also that, you know, we've had this conversation before about the crossover of building regulations. And at the moment, um, some people will agree, some people will not agree, but there potentially is a problem with this thing called global warming. Um, And therefore, a lot of the new doors are going in now, are having to adopt the green agenda and get the correct U values in. So it's all about energy efficiency. So again, you're not just getting a fire door, you're potentially getting a security door and an energy efficient door, yeah. as opposed to a door which is 60 years old, which really none of this was thought about. Yeah. So I think we have to think about the long-term benefits of replacing as well, not just from a, a fire point of view, but an environmental point of view. And we are already considering fire, and they fudge the issue over everything else, don't they? Yes. You know, security, we'll forget about that. You I, value, we'll forget about that. I think also for me... For me um, what hasn't been considered um, in the design specification of door sets is about the life cycle of that door set. Um, You know, even today, uh, even recognising that we may need to replace a door set because of all of the points that you raised, Danny, um, you know, we still got a situation where you've got a door manufacturer who will provide an accredited door set and provide you with all the certification for that. But then there's the installation process that could go to someone completely different who's installing mm-hmm. that door set. And you may get a certificate, a certification for that in terms of the install. But then at the point, the day after you've got that certificate because it's been installed, any adaptation to that door set means it invalidates all of the warranties associated with it. And I think we need to be moving to a place where we're looking at how that door set is maintained over its life cycle, whatever that life cycle is. So if yeah, it is yeah. a 10-year process, there needs to be a maintenance regime yeah. that's in place that is accommodating that. And people need to budget for capital cost of replacement when it comes to the end. I suppose it's a good question for Suzanne, really, is, I mean, how you're, you're spending a lot of time and effort installing certified product yeah. and probably using third-party certificated people to install it on your behalf, I would imagine. Uh, it's a combination. Or we've, using your own, yeah, so you've done it yourselves. Operatives at BM Trader. So you, so you ultimately become a third-party certificated in yes. company yourselves. How are you 
what what sort of methodology do you use for sort of recording that data? Because obviously Hackett talks about sort of long term digital by default kind of golden thread of information. How yeah. how are you recording that for your for your clients? Uh, well, we've actually started using um, MyQtag, which is something obviously Danny is well invested in. Um, so it's uh, other apps are available. I assume. Yes, of course, it's a web. Don't, don't think they are, are they? <laughs> I think <laughs> we've, uh, no, no one is sad enough to have created two Firedoor apps. <laughs> I think we well, know we more about MyQtag. Well, also use it for fire stopping. As yeah, well. we use it for door insulation, door maintenance, um, fire stopping, and for sort of reactive. Repairs. Mm-hmm. So when we just put a door closer or strips and seals, so something that isn't under the certification. Um, we've got clients that got other systems, so like uh, risk-based and risk-hub, but yeah. quite similar. We find that MyQtag is actually really beneficial. Previous to using that, we were it was just email traffic, so our operators were on site, trying to yeah. download or upload photos, send them across to the administrators so they could log it, and then it gets sent across to the client. They might miss it. It's not in the correct place. You know, It, it was quite... yeah. Laborious. Haphazard. So, yeah. yeah. So, having MyQtag is really simple for us. It's really easy. The operatives on site and our subcontractors, because, like I say, we, we have a blend of both. They've all got logins. They can take the pictures. Yeah. Write down what they've done. They can um, specify the materials used, upload straight away. Lifetime, our administrators yeah. can see it's there. We've also had um, got Danny to adapt it for us because like, here we've got a um, double level sign off on the works. So, the op- uh, operations team will do the level one sign off, and then it comes to myself and my team to do the level two. Yeah. And until my team have approved it, it doesn't go to the client. So and we don't send we, them. We were talking way. about this in the last one around how some constructors are using third party certificated fire stopping contractors and then getting another third party certificated fire stopping contractor to come back and check that work as by virtue of that sort of two level. Well, we, we offer a three level to our clients. So the first level is BM Trader site operatives or yeah. site managers will sign off. Level two is uh, myself and my team as the compliance team. And then the third one is to ask if they want an th- independent consultant company to come yeah. out and check sort of 10%. I, I think it needs to to happen that way just purely for the fact that I'm going on site at the moment and seeing five-door installations which have been signed off, but they're rubbish. Yeah. Um, but yet it's the client and the contractor think that they've got a certificate from the installation um, which proves that the installation is correct even though it isn't. Um, you know, the, the, the fire stopping non-existent is always a classic. But even recently, I've been picking up times where they're using the wrong length screws. And we're not talking by a lot, but we're talking a 50 mil wood screw to hold a frame in. Right. It just doesn't work. But yet people don't aren't aware of this. And I think there needs to be a second level in there to check. Just because at the end of the day, it's, these are life safety products and, you know, we're trying to save people's lives. And just because it's a Friday afternoon door it shouldn't make any difference. Yeah, yeah that's why absolutely. we introduced the level two sign-off. So my team is completely independent to the operational team. So there's no conflict of interest. You know, if they haven't done it right, we'll put yeah. them up on it. Haven't got any issues with that because obviously it's people's lives at risk. We need to make sure it's done correctly. And I think also there needs to be a lot more transparency from the door manufacturers to provide their component lists of what actually is used in that particular door. Yeah. And again, this is what Kira using because they're uploading it against the sites where the doors have gone in and it will tell you the make of the hinge, the make of the intermessent seal or something like that. So if there's a reactive repair that needs to be done, which they're contracted to, they know the exact part, part to go number. to, yeah. which isn't going to compromise the integrity of the door. Yeah, it's good. Dave's looking very, very frustrated here about which questions to ask next. I've got too many questions, Tom. Too many questions. Um, Suzanne, sort of moving the conversation on on a little bit more to the sort of the the, the large main contractors like uh, Keir, what 
What sort of frustrations um, do you perceive your clients have with the whole risk assessment remediation process? Um, I mean, I mean, is it something that they're, they're is causing issues? Obviously, as head of compliance, you have a you probably uh, get the flack for any issues that they've got. I mean, is it something you're you're finding is a yeah, there's a good process. Um, clients do have frustrations. I think it starts with the specification from the risk assessment. I think they're so generic or. Um, elusive that you know when you get to site it's open to interpretation like Danny t touched on earlier you know, you know you may come to a riser that said there was three penetrations actually there's six or there could be more riser covers we need to fire stop so it's causing them issues with access um, so is the, the amb ambiguity of the action in it the is yeah um, the risk assessments there's just not clear when we get out and we could go thinking we're doing one job and actually it turns into something a lot bigger mm -hmm. uh, a lot more sort of complex and intricate so it's frustrating for us and for the, the clients. Um, and I think also one of the frustrations for the clients is access with the tenants because if they're getting a nice new shiny door, they're so, happy so, to let you so in. So Kia don't have any um, interaction in terms of input into the fire risk assessment. You, Your no. clients arrange their own fire risk yep. assessments with separate companies. Yeah, they get them done by... You, you, you um, sort of um, action the results of that. Yeah. Hence, you're getting all different quality, a different quality of fire risk assessment. Yeah, most of our clients have them done by um, consultants. Some do them internally, not many. Um, but yeah, the the level of detail just isn't there. We don't get, have any involvement until obviously the actions are then sent to us. Mm. It's then for us to decipher what actually needs doing. Dave, if, if I could just sort of add to that, um, uh, and it was touched on um, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about procurement. I think one of the problems is that there is. Um, um, a misplaced expectation from some of the clients that they procure a fire risk assessment and then that that fire risk assessment is suitable to just pass to a contractor to actually deliver the works. Yeah. And and that is because there is quite a lack of understanding at, at uh, client level on the different types of assessment that required. So if you have a type one, which is you know generally a visual assessment of com common areas, but then we've got, um, you know, the more going up into the more intrusive type four assessments, which will provide you with a much more detailed report, which will enable contractors to be able to more accurately specify the work. Um, and, you know, I was only with a client um, a couple of weeks ago where I was finding myself having to educate that client as to the different types of fire risk assessment because they simply thought that we'd carry out a type one assessment, give it to the contractor, and the contractor can just go off and deliver I the work. I think that's a really common problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so there is a real education piece. And it, and it's, again, um, I, I think the work of um, the working group 11 um, in terms of the... Um, the construction industry council that's that's looking at this area around procurement i think it's one of those areas that they really do need to focus on in making sure that what they're procuring they understand what they're procuring and um you know consultants have a part to play in that but also the, the clients need to educate themselves about what it is that they, they're looking they to do procure. and they need to have the confidence to challenge the consultants Absolutely. that are doing the risk assessments i think yeah. they take it as gospel too much at the moment Absolutely. and they literally just pass it straight onto the contractors like you say i mean one of the other problems that you've got with it and, and dave's looking at me like we've got to stop now because the 90 second quiz is coming and, and that's fine but the last point i'm going to make is that, that you, we've got four types of fire risk assessment and the four types of fire risk assessment are described in one paragraph for each of them in the dclg guide there is no 
past 79, inverted commas, that covers type 2, type 3, type 4. There is nothing for it. There is no standard specification. There's no nationally recognized guidance. There's nothing. So everybody that's procuring anything other than a type 1 FRA is basically at the whim of the consultancy that they employ to deliver them something that meets a very, very simple one paragraph. And what's critical is that it's all well and good looking at competency risk assessors, but we judge competency against the past 79 FRAs, which ultimately is a type 1 FRA in a residential building. So, so someone needs to do something about past 79 and they need to have past 79 for housing and they need to define what the scope is properly and what the requirements are properly for a type 2, a type 3 and a type 4. And the competency of the individuals required to do that because that will differ to a type 1 and the contractors that you might use around passive fire protection or fire door inspection as part of that. And at the end of the day, you're, you're at the mercy of how good a contractor you engage with. And having delivered those services... We felt it was okay to use a third-party certificate contractor when we looked at initial contracts for, for passive. But you don't have to do... I mean, there's no requirements. There's no requirement to bring in a passive fire protection expert. There's no requirement to bring in a fire door expert as part of your Type 4 FRA. It's just something that when when we started to create those for clients, that's what we thought would be the right way. But there'll be, there'll be organisations out there just sending any old Joe again to do it, you know. And we've really got to look at that. It's all well and good having competency, but against what yeah, scope. I agree, that definitely needs addressing. Yeah. Right, time has beaten us uh, again this week. Um, we've just got time to, for Suzanne to do the 90-second quiz and then we are out of here. Okay. Suzanne, we haven't told you about this. You haven't told me about this. I'm you haven't told scared. you about this. <laughs> okay, you've got 90 seconds. Uh, the top score so far is two, Tom? It is two. The second place is one and a half and third one place is and one zero. and a zero. Um, so I think I'm probably... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. You tell me when you're ready. Uno, dos, tres, go. Okay. Suzanne, in Texas, criminals must give victims what? Money. 24 hours advance written notice. Over a <laughs> lifetime, the average person grows how much nose hair? 10 metres. Seven feet, which I think is less. <laughs> it never caught on, but in 1901, Dr. Dowsand demonstrated what? I haven't a clue, I'm afraid. A silent cinema for the blind. Uh, okay. The world's busiest McDonald's is located in what city? London. Moscow. Moscow. Ooh. By law in China, you must be what to go to school? Male. Intelligent. <laughs> 40% of Americans could not identify which country on a map. Sorry, say again. <laughs> 40%. Sorry, 14% of Americans could not identify which country on a map. It's got to be America. I was going to say probably America. America. <laughs> By law, every citizen of Kentucky must do what annually? Cluck. Paraglide. Take a bath. In ancient... Only annually? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Birthdays. In ancient Egypt, men and women, when peeing, did what that is opposite to today? Hmm. On their head. They what, sorry? Men sat down and women stood up. Correct, Tom. You get yes. a point for that. Wicked. Okay, that's that my title. Uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of apples, what do the Adams family members bob for? Worms. Crabs, nearly. Mm. What large animals other than members of the cat family purr when they are happy? Tom. <laughs> I can hear him purring, actually. Um, no idea. 
balls. Beep, beep, Gabriel Fallopius. Can I just ask, ask this one? Go on then. <laughs> Extra bonus. Gabriel Fallopius is credited with inventing what? Inventing what? Inventing. Gabriel Fallopius. You could work it out. No. I'm, I'm glad John, I'm not the only one looking. John, Danny. Looks like, looks like we're not going to school in China then. No. <laughs> Definitely not. covered fallopian tubes. Condoms. Ah, condoms. There you go. Right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our Wonderful. guest, Danny White, um, John Powell, and <laughs> Suzanne Eagled <laughs> from name. here. <laughs> Thanks for having us. That's it for this week. See you next week, Tom. Ta da. Podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as a substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in a podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries here in Frankham make no warranty guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcast. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to, or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within.